Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going. We're making it. We're out of chapter 1. Anybody else? on? Yeah, see? That's... This morning we are continuing and getting back into our study through the book of Ephesians. I was blessed by uh, Jared's message last week, encouraged by what he shared, really thankful for him. Uh, we're continuing our study through the book of Ephesians, and, and I've titled today's message, and I know that even saying this, there's a childish part of us that will chuckle. The title is, But God, dot, dot, dot. And the reason that that's the title is not because I'm trying to be clever, it's found in our text. It is a pivotal moment in the passage of Scripture that we're going to be studying today, and hopefully will will be a a powerful phrase for us to stand upon and be encouraged by because that, that, those two words, those three dots that I, I've placed there, is God's movement. It's God's initiation. It's God's work. It's God's grace. It's God's intervention in our lives. And man, do we need him. We need him. We have moments that may not be exactly what we're reading today. It's not us looking back at our spiritual condition, but there are moments that maybe seem bleak, seem dark, seem hopeless, and for us to be able to grab a hold of that today, that in the midst of all the things that oftentimes seem way over our heads, that that we have no idea how it's going to work out, that we can say even these things to ourselves this morning, but God. Yeah, this is going on in the world, but God. Yeah, this is what's going on in my life and in the situation that I'm facing and what's going on internally with me in my mind, but God. And our main text today is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And just for some brief context here, uh, Paul, as we saw there for a handful of weeks, spent the first portion of his letter to the saints, the church in Ephesus, uh, the entirety of chapter 1, first praising God for what he's done for us and in us, the spiritual blessings we've been blessed with in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, and then second, thanking the Lord for the believers in Ephesus, letting them know that he had been praying for them and, and giving details of what he had been praying for as he prayed for them and thank God for them without ceasing. But hold my walkie-talkie calls. I'm just kidding. <laughs> breaker, breaker, one nine. But now, after letting them know what he had been praying for for them, he, he's going to describe the, the spiritual reality, we could say, the spiritual condition of their lives before they receive Jesus' salvation, which describes the spiritual reality, the spiritual condition of every single human being who has not humbled themselves and repented of their sin and received Jesus' salvation by grace through faith, but then is going to describe what happened when God stepped into our lives and saved us, making us alive together with Christ which is going to help us see the reality of what it means to be dead in sin, 
but also to see the blessed reality of what it means to be made alive in Christ Jesus. And with Paul's prayer in mind, that we would know the exceeding greatness of God's power toward us who believe. This was what he had just been writing about in the closing verses of chapter 1. It's going to become clear that the exceeding greatness of God's power toward us who believe is still the, ba- the, the backdrop, it's still the context for what Paul now speaks into in the first part of chapter 2, as we're going to see in our study this morning. And before we go any further, I want to show a quote by John Stott. This was written in 1979, so this is not like a current, he's not speaking into this from a current perspective. So when we read the word media, when he says media, this is media in 1979. He's not saying like now with the internet and social media, it's like, I wonder what he would have added if he was now kind of rewriting it or editing it in the current day. But he shared some introductory thoughts on this passage we're going to be looking at. And he said this, I sometimes wonder if good and thoughtful people have never been more depressed about the human predicament than they are today. Of course, every age is bound to have a blurred vision of its own problems because it is too close to them to get them into focus. And every generation breeds new prophets of doom. Nevertheless, the media enable us to grasp the worldwide extent of contemporary evil. And it is this which makes the modern scene look so dark. It is partly the escalating economic problem, population growth, the spoliation. I had to look this up in the dictionary. It means plundering. The, the plundering of natural resources, inflation, unemployment, hunger, he says, Partly the spread of social conflict, racism, tribalism, the class struggle, disintegrating family life, and partly the absence of accepted moral guidelines leading to violence, dishonesty, and sexual promiscuity. Man, he says, seems incapable of managing his own affairs or of creating a just, free, humane, and tranquil society. For man himself is askew. We're the problem. He says, against the somber uh, background of our world today, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 stands out in striking relevance. Paul first plums the depths of pessimism about man and then rises to the heights of optimism about God. It is this combination of pessimism and optimism, of despair and faith, which constitutes the refreshing realism of the Bible. For what Paul does in this passage is to paint a vivid contrast between what man is by nature and what he can become by grace. I just loved that uh, introduction. As we're going to see in verses 1 through 3, the picture that we're about to be given is not a positive one. But it is an extremely important one for us to be clear about. And in these first three verses, we're going to be given three truths about the unredeemed human condition, which according to John Stott is that we were first dead, second, that we were enslaved, and then third, that we were condemned. And so with all of that in mind, verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul says, and you... He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. 
Now, if in your Bible you see some italicized letters there, that means that this was not in the original manuscript. This was something that was inserted there to help the flow of thought. This is something that Paul picks up and writes about and inserts actually in some of the later verses that we're going to be looking at. But really how this would read is, in, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins. It's not, he doesn't start with a hopeful sort of landscape. It's just like, you were dead. That's it. Signs off like, good talking to you. Paul out. Like, thankfully, that's not where, that's not where it ends. But, but the first thing Paul points out about the unredeemed or the unsaved human condition is that we were dead, spiritually dead. And it can be hard for us to sort of rationalize this. We can look at or, or think about our prior life before coming to Christ, and we can think, we can look back and we... We can see our, our need for Jesus, but we might not look back and go like, man, I was just completely dead in sin. We might think like, I had a, you know, there was good things. I lived, I did, I did good things, you know, I was active and I contributed in my community maybe even. And, and so we can think about that and, and maybe someone reading this who is still unredeemed. They could think, well, you know, I've got physical life. Uh, people without salvation could do good things. They can have a life full of activity. They can seem to have so much vibrancy even as they go about their days. They could be moral and generous and compassionate. They can have some semblance of piety or devotion and religious sort of, sorts of doings and even a desire for spiritual things. But what Paul is saying here is that while all of those things can be true about a person physically, that a person without Jesus' salvation is spiritually dead. And, and death biblically always speaks of separation. They're spiritually separated from God, cut off from the Lord at enmity with the Lord. In fact, we're told biblically that we were enemies of God, not just in opposing sides of a battlefield, like, wow, I, I, I accidentally ended up over here. No, we were enemies of God. Because of the sin nature that we were born with. See, none of the good things, none of the activity, none of the vibrancy, none of the morality, none of the generosity and compassion, none of the piety or devotion. None of the religiosity or, or desire for spiritual things will ever change an unredeemed, unsaved person's condition of being dead spiritually. None of it will twist God's arm into making them alive. None of it will earn God's acceptance to make them alive because that's not how it works. A dead person cannot resurrect themselves. And the hard part of what we see in the world is that as people just kind of see their sinful state or the, the evidence of the sinful state, because they, they might not even say that it was sin, but the evidence of the sinful state, they would just nowadays say, it's a disease. It's a sickness. 
And there are plenty of diseases and sickness. I'm not saying that there's not. But when someone's sinning, we don't blame it on some, like, well, I couldn't help it. It's like, no, you sin because you're a sinner. And, and God's not in the business of making bad people good or, or, or sick people just feeling a little bit better. He's in the business of making dead people alive. And, and so when we come with the wrong starting point, we can't ever get to the right ending point. When we're just seeing it as like, well, there's some sickness. It's, you know, we can overcome it. We can get better. We can improve as a society. Have we improved in thousands of years? No. Again, can you be moral? Yes. Can you be generous? Yes. Can you show compassion? Yes. We can look at tons of Instagram or TikTok videos of people giving out free things and helping people on the street. But none of that changes a dead person from their spiritually dead state to now being alive. And that could be offensive to people. How dare you say that I'm dead right now? I have a good life. I do good things. Yeah, I do some bad things every once in a while, but I'm a pretty good person. This could be completely offensive. Everything that Paul writes about in these first three verses could offend someone. But the point of this is not offense. The point of it is to have our eyes opened to the truth. Because if we can recognize that there is a, a, an issue that is so irreparable from a human standpoint like death, then we can see, God, you need to do the miraculous to change where I'm at now. And we have a God who loves to deal in the miraculous. We were dead in sin and trespasses. He uses two different words, words there when describing what we were dead in. Trespasses, you know, if you've ever come to a place and you see a sign and it says no trespassing, what happens when you go past that point? What, what happens when you go over that fence, you you cross that line, you are now a trespasser. And you may do it unknowingly. You might be in an area and all of a sudden find yourself like, oh shoot, I wasn't supposed to be here. That doesn't change the fact that you trespassed. You just didn't do it on purpose. So it could be knowingly or unknowingly, this idea of trespassing. But there's a crossing of a boundary. There's a... There's a um, a, a willful rebellion, or, or maybe not even willful, but there's an offense that's taken place. And he also say, says sins. That word sin there speaks of missing a mark. I did a little bit of archery when I was younger, very small amount. Some person's dad was like teaching a, like a thing or something. And I don't know that I ever hit the mark in that sense. Like, I don't think, even in those, like, 
games that you can play through text message on your phone, and I'll play them with my kids. And one is like the archery game, and it's like, I almost never hit the mark in those games. I can't figure out the wind speed and trying to move my finger across the screen just the right time to release. Some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. That's okay. The point is, we can have a desire to hit the mark, but all of us have missed at some point. Maybe we've hit it in some ways at some points in our lives, but, but not forever and not in everything. And for us, in sinning, we are missing the mark of perfection. God's word has a righteous, perfect standard. And each one of us have missed that. We might have wanted to hit it. We, we could have done our best to hit it. But each one of us have sinned. Again, all of this is painting an accurate and needed picture of how bleak things are for the unsaved and, and where we once were. This first aspect of the unredeemed human condition is huge. We were dead. But Paul goes on to say this in verse 2. He says, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Our walk before being made alive in Christ, and that word walk being a word Paul's going to use throughout this letter, which speaks of our behavior or our, our manner of living, was once according to to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So we saw the first thing about the unredeemed human condition. We were dead spiritually, but the second now is that we were enslaved. Slaves to the world and our flesh and the devil. This means there's no true freedom for any unsaved person no matter how much they think or say that they're free and aren't a slave to anything. The truth is that they are slaves in one of these three ways or, or likely and, and are in all three ways. Our manner of living, our walk was once according to the course of this world. We were going along with the rest of this evil age and its godless system, its values, its beliefs, its philosophies that are all in rebellion to God. Even the most outspoken, self-described nonconformist without Christ is walking in conformity to this world's godless systems and values and beliefs and philosophies. The reason we went along with the rest of this evil age and its godless system was because we were walking according to the prince of the power of the air. That word air kind of speaking of the domain or environment. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, meaning that we were under the sway, we were under the influence of Satan, according to 1 John chapter 5, verse 9. We were in bondage to his rule, his power, his authority, 
And ultimately, we're fulfilling his purposes as he worked to keep us and the rest of humanity in a state of disobedience, not submitting to God's authority. So the non-redeemed state of slavery isn't just being a slave to this world, but also to Satan himself, to his influence and control. But Paul goes on to say this in verse 3. He says, Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. So in case the saints in Ephesus and us today felt like Paul was just sort of pointing a finger at all of us in a way where none of these things were true of him, Paul makes it clear that before Jesus met him and radically saved him on the road to Damascus, that he was just like us. And again, this is those things where we can't judge a person's deadness by their outward sort of form of righteousness, because Paul had that as a Pharisee. He was, he was living out God's word to the T. He says he was blameless in the book of Philippians. But he was a covetous man, he says. There's things in Paul's life, even though outwardly everything looked great and he was zealous for God in a way that was beyond his contemporaries. Even for the Apostle Paul, he's going, that was me. I was dead. I was a slave. He doesn't go, and this is you, 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 you. He's like, and we, we all once conducted ourselves. We all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Paul says, and we're by nature children of wrath, just like everybody else. We were slaves to our flesh. This isn't speaking of your physical body. This is speaking of our fallen, sinful nature that we were born with. Slaves to our flesh doing whatever it wanted. See, before Christ saved us, we just did whatever our sin nature lusted after and craved and desired to do. You might have denied yourself in certain cravings, like, I'm not going to drink as much. I'm not going to get as high. I'm not going to go and be as promiscuous right now. I'm going to scale it back a little bit. But you still gave in to those sinful cravings that existed in you, whatever that was for you. Our flesh loves to take normal desires and twist them. Right? We could see it in so many different ways, from food to providing. Like, man, of course, providing. Then you can, you can overwork where you neglect your family. 
but I just want to make more money, and I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it. I'm going to step on whoever I need to to get there. And you can twist a normal desire to just want to provide and just kind of be okay financially. You could twist just a normal desire for food in one of two ways, where you starve yourself or you overeat. You can twist a normal, natural, God-given desire for sex that's supposed to be in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. It can be twisted in all sorts of different ways, both inside and outside of marriage. And, and we're a slave. Before Christ saved us, we were a slave to that part of ourselves that just wanted what it wanted. Whatever we thought was what we went with. Slave of the flesh and of the mind. You know, for all of us, before Christ, we were our own God in a sense. Because whatever we thought was the thing to do, whatever we wanted was the thing, and whatever our will was, and we just, we went with it. And contrary to what many think about mankind, that we're all children of God, Paul says here basically, nope. Before Christ saved us, We were children of wrath. Children of wrath. Meaning that that spiritual condition is one where God's righteous anger is coming in order to punish sin. Just like every other person who has not surrendered themselves yet to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and received his salvation. And Paul's not saying these things with pleasure, thinking of those that have not been redeemed yet. He's not going, yeah, they should be dead. Serves them right. Children of wrath, they're going to get what's coming to them. Man, it just totally breaks my heart and makes me angry. A righteous anger when I see believers taking that sort of position towards lost people. Just kind of like a, yeah, like that was, they got it. You know, it's like, no, God, that's not God. God's not doing that. That's not how God's looking. That was us. He would have done that to us then. Because we were no different than anybody else who was separated from God by their sin. So were we. Maybe our sin looked different than them. Maybe the outward de- the decay of spiritual death was a little more progressed than somebody else, but we were just as dead as anybody else, just in need of Jesus as anybody else. And this is that third truth of the unredeemed human condition, that we were condemned. What we had coming to us What's God's wrath? You know, John the Baptist spoke into this in John chapter 3, verse 36. He said, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son 
shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So either someone is a child of God, which only happens through a personal saving knowledge of Jesus Christ by his grace, through faith in him, or a person is a child of wrath, meaning that they're on the road to destruction with hell being their eternal destiny if they don't humble themselves and repent of their sin and turn in faith to to Jesus. There is no in-between. There's no gray area here. Either a person is dead in sin with all these things Paul talks about in verses 1 through 3 being true of their spiritual condition, or they've been made alive spiritually in Christ Jesus, born again by the Spirit of God. But into that bleak, dark, hopeless, and depressing picture that Paul accurately painted for us in verses 1 through 3, we now see a new, glorious, hope-filled, and powerful picture emerge as we get into verse 4, as Paul now exalts our God and what he's done. So look at verses 4 through 6 with me. Paul says, But God, who is rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But God, in the beginning of verse 4, is one of the most powerful and wonderful phrases in the Bible. When we see that phrase in light of how terrible and bleak our spiritual condition before Christ saved us was. And it's a phrase that gives us great hope. Great hope as we pray for those who haven't yet received Jesus' salvation, knowing that what God did to take us from where we were at spiritually dead, to where we are now, spiritually alive, is a miracle that he can work and wants to work in the lives of others too. And Paul in verse 4 reminds us about our God, that he's rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy. He has a wealth of mercy, an abundant supply of mercy. Now, that word mercy can also be translated pity or compassion. It carries the sense of leniency and compassion shown towards offenders by a person or agency of authority. So he has an abundance of mercy, of compassion for those who have broken his law, have rebelled against him. That was us. We transgressed and sinned against him. We were living in a state of disobedience and rebellion to his authority. But we also see about our God, and this reveals his motivation, that with his great love, he has loved us. You know, were we lovely? And that's why he loved us with his great love, according to verses 1 through 3. 
No. Were we worthy of his great love, according to verses 1 through 3? No. Were we deserving of his great love, according to verses 1 through 3? No. He loved us with this great love that he has for us in spite of our lack of loveliness and worthiness and deservedness because that's the kind of God that he is. His love is great. That word great meaning remarkable or out of the ordinary in degree or magnitude or effect. His love is perfect and powerful. And it's been displayed for us through God sending his son to die for us. The word love Paul uses here is the word agape. That sacrificial, selfless, unconditional sort of love that God has for you and me. And his love is directed toward us. Notice, with which he loved us. We are loved by God. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, extended his mercy and love to us when we were children of wrath. Sons and daughters of disobedience, when we were transgressors and sinners, when we were spiritually dead, which just makes who our God is and what he's done even greater. And when did he love us with this great love? Well, as we see in verse 5, it was when we were dead in sin and trespasses. So he loved us with his perfect and radical love, demonstrated his love for us through the sacrifice of himself upon the cross of Calvary when we were at our very worst. You ever, maybe, maybe this is with you, and, or, or maybe you've heard someone kind of have this sort of mindset that like, God will love me when I clean up my act a little bit. He'll, right, right. Like, he'll love me more if I can just figure things out in my life a little bit better, better if I can just be a little bit more perfect. God will love me even more. Or you know what? I can't even come to God until some of these things. I'm working on some stuff. I will eventually. But what we see here is not that. That's not God's requirement. He's not looking at us and going, you know what? I would love you a little bit more. If you could just stop doing that. We might feel that way. We carry those things with us to the Lord, right? All of that, that comes with us. That's, that's part of the baggage that we sort of like drag behind us as we come to Jesus. But that's not his heart. He's not going, when you can overcome the trespasses and sins, then I'll love you with my great love. Then I'll extend my immense mercy to you. He's going right where you are. 
my love for you now couldn't be greater. To know that God loved us and he sent his son to die for us while we were still sinners. If we could just grab a hold of some of these things, if we could share these things with someone else who's struggling in their faith or or struggling to come to the Lord, and they're in that place, they're, they've not yet received Jesus' salvation, and we can share with them, look, this was me. These things, and, and opening up Ephesians 2, this was me. This is you, but this was me. But this is what God wants to do. This is what God is able to do. This is what he's desiring to do. He did it in my life. And he could do it in yours. How many need to hear that? How many need to know the testimony of God in your life? I was dead, but now I'm alive. I was a slave, but Jesus has set me free. I was a child of wrath, but now I'm a child of God. In that place where we were dead spiritually, life came. He made us alive together with Christ, notice. The the power that raised Christ from the dead raised us to newness of life. And the reason we were given new life, the reason we received salvation was by God's grace. This is something Paul is going to Write about some more, and we're going to dive into that some more next week. But this parenthetical thought in verse 5 is a reminder that we weren't made alive spiritually, taken from death and brought into newness of life with Christ because of any sort of work or contribution from us, but that it was solely a miraculous work of God's power that was rooted in God's grace Towards you and me. When God saved us by His grace, in that very moment, He took us from spiritual death and gave us spiritual life, newness of life, reconciling us to the Father, making us new creations in Christ Jesus, where all the old things have passed away. And behold, all things have become new. He did that. He did that. And not only did he make us alive, he raised us up out of the slavery that we once were in, to our flesh, to this world system, to the devil, taking us out of the darkness where we were under the sway of Satan And he's raised us up together, as we see in verse 6, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I like what Warren Wearsby said about this. He wrote, we are not raised from the dead and left in the graveyard. Because we are united to Christ, we have been exalted with him, and we are sharing his throne in the heavenlies. 
Our physical position may be on earth, but our spiritual position is in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We aren't seated there now with Christ practically and presently in the heavenlies, but we are seated there in Christ positionally in the eyes of God. And one day, because of the grace of Jesus, we will be there practically and presently and eternally with him. Heaven now being our true home since we've been made citizens of the kingdom of God through faith in Christ. Guys, things before Christ saved us were beyond hope. That's what I see in verses 1 through 3. That's a beyond hope sort of picture. But God, this is what our God has done for and in us. But Paul in verse 7 makes it clear that there's more that God will still do in the future. He goes on to say in verse 7, that in, the ex, uh, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Instead of us being under the wrath of God, ultimately leading to us being eternally separated from God, where only eternal torment would be in store for us, that was our previous position Because of what Jesus has done for us and in us, making us alive, making us children of God, now, in the ages to come, because of the salvation of Jesus, what's in store for you and me as disciples of Jesus Christ is heaven, where he's going to show, he's going to display for all eternity the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And I like what uh, pastor and Bible commentator Tony Evans said about this verse. He wrote, It is grace that makes Christianity different from every other religion. Other religions tell you what you must do to get to God. Christianity tells you what God has done to get to you. For all eternity, God will display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus, or to put it another way, you haven't seen anything yet. Eternity with God, he says, will be a nonstop, never-ending, blow-your-mind experience. See, we can look back, we consider what God has done in taking us from death and slavery and and wrath and making us alive and raising us up and seating us positionally with Christ and say, man, but God, with hearts full of gratitude and rejoicing, worshiping him because of what we've already experienced, what's true of us already because of God's grace. But there's an element here, as we see in verse 7, where we, we are also able to look forward in hope. Biblical hope. Not wishful thinking, but a confident expectation of future fulfillment to the things God has promised he will do in the future. That he's going to unfold more and more of the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ in the ages to come. 
And we can worship him now in advance for those things, knowing that he who promised is faithful. Now the worship team come back up. In closing, you know, our outlook isn't to be one of despair, where we just sort of camp out in verses one through three. But I was dead. You don't get it. I was dead. Never like seeing the other side of that, the, the, the but God aspect of things. But I was a slave. You don't get it. I was a slave. I couldn't stop it. I just... Not despair. To be one of great hope, great rejoicing, worship, thankfulness, awe, as we consider what God has done in verses 4 through 6 and will still yet do like we see in verse 7. And not only should these verses minister to our hearts as we consider who we once were, but now who we are in Christ and what Christ has done for us by his power and grace and his love and his mercy, these verses should also give us a clear, a clear perspective and a compassionate heart for the lost, for the spiritually dead all around us in this world who have not yet been saved by God's grace, not yet been made alive in Christ Jesus. And it should motivate us, first, to be even more prayerful for them. And then second, to be bringing the love and gospel of Jesus to them so that they can be brought from death to life just like God has done with us. And if anyone's joined us today that, and hasn't first opened their heart to Jesus Christ, you know, as much as it could feel offensive to see what Paul wrote in verses 1 through 3, the heart behind this is that our eyes would be opened to the reality of where we're at. So that we would see that something needs to change and I can't change it. I can't make myself not be dead spiritually anymore if, if that's you and you're not yet saved. You can't stop being a slave to sin, uh, to the world and the flesh and the devil. You're stuck there. You can't stop being a, a child of wrath because you haven't received the mercy of God. But all of that can change today. So let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for your mercy, your great love, your grace toward us. The Lord, you saw us in our spiritual deadness. You saw us in our slavery to to the flesh and the world and the devil. God, you saw us. In that place of being children of disobedience, you saw us, Lord, in that place of being children of wrath. And God, you didn't want to leave us there. So Lord, you did the unthinkable. Sending your son here for us. God, that we could have newness of life. 
We could be set free. We could be made children of God. To have all the things of verses 4 through 7 be true of us today. And for those of us, Lord, who are, who are on that side of verse 4, God, we say thank you. Lord, we praise you. We worship you. That, God, you didn't leave us where we were. But that, God, you have saved us by your grace. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here that hasn't opened their heart to you, they haven't surrendered their life to you, they haven't repented of their sin. They don't have a personal saving relationship with you. That God, even now, you would be speaking to their hearts, God. Both convicting and convincing them, Lord, of their need for Jesus. If that's anybody here this morning and you're going, that's me. I don't want to be dead anymore. I don't want to be a slave anymore. I don't want to be a child of wrath anymore. I want God. I want the salvation of Jesus. I want his grace and his mercy and his kindness. I want his life in me. If that's you, would you raise your hand this morning so I can pray for you? And just go, that's, that's me. I need Jesus. I want Jesus in my life. Is that anybody at all? Maybe even someone online this morning or listening later on would go, that's, that's me. That you would in your heart just say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my sins, Lord. Cleanse me of all my unrighteousness. Jesus, I humble myself before you. I repent of my sin today. And I put my trust in you. I believe, Jesus, you died on the cross for me. Jesus, I believe that you rose from the grave. Jesus, would you raise me to newness of life today? Feel me with your spirit. Make me a child of God. Set me free and help me to live for you. I encourage you, if you've prayed that in faith, the Bible says you will be saved. Lord, would we not just be thankful for ourselves that, God, you've done these things, but that, God, these things would motivate us to see the world around us differently to pray more fervently. God, to live lives of boldness where we live out the Great Commission, taking your gospel to the last and the least and the lost, that they could be saved, they could find newness of life, they could be set free, they could be made children of God just like we have. So God, we thank you, we love you. We want to respond to your word now in songs of praise and maybe for some getting prayer in the back corner of the room and others taking the communion elements. But God, continue to move in this place, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.